Hello, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media by searching Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Also, please feel free to, you know, rate, follow, subscribe, you know, review all the things just anything you can do uh to help us out with those you know silly numbers uh that all helps us so thank you so much for that uh also you can find me on twitter at austin glidden by all means you know uh come talk to me get on letterboxd.com find me there under austin glidden uh yeah i would love to meet and talk with you guys uh via social media be a fun time but today uh, you know, we're going to have some fun later. I'm going to have Joe on, uh, our old friend Joe. He's going to come out, and we're going to celebrate Brian De Palma's birthday uh, by watching my pick of a Brian De Palma film and his pick of a Brian De Palma film. Funny enough, they are back-to-back uh, in his filmography, but mine just so happens to be the 1981 uh, John Travolta flick, uh, blowout, okay, and then his is the Oliver Stone written uh, Al Pacino vehicle, Scarface, the more kind of pop culture classic. So uh, we're going to be talking about those two movies, and believe it or not, we didn't even go super long on them. I don't even think we went an hour and a half talking about two movies. What's happening to Joe and I? I don't know. Maybe we're just getting better at this. Uh, but first, I'm going to talk about a few movies. Actually, I'm going to talk about. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about uh, a couple of westerns that I watched with my grandfather, uh, my dad's dad. Uh, you know, he he's into westerns. I actually didn't know that until like not that long ago, a few months ago or so. And then I decided I'm going to make a list of westerns, either that I would love to rewatch or uh, stuff I haven't seen before. Today we actually have a rewatch and uh, one I hadn't seen. And uh, I just thought it'd be fun to watch with him, you know. So last weekend I was able to go visit and we watched two westerns. Uh, and those are 310 to Yuma from 1957. Uh, I had seen that before. It's one of my all time favorite westerns. I love it. Uh, but I'll let you know my updated opinion on it. Okay. Um, and then uh, I got, for the first time, I got to see the movie that people have recommended that I watch for so long. And I had just been waiting to do a John Ford marathon. So I just put it on the back burner. But I actually had an opportunity to watch The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. So I'm excited to talk about that for the first time after seeing it, you know, uh, after seeing it for the first time. Uh, yeah, it, it'd be a fun chat. Um, and uh, I guess I guess I'll just say this without making like an official review. Uh, my wife and I literally just before I came up here, we watched the uh, the new horror film Malignant. Uh, and it came out uh, last Friday. I'm not going to do a full review because, quite frankly, I haven't fully processed it. I can tell you this, though. I'm a little torn on it, and I would love for you to hit us up. Again, Medium Cool Pod, or you can at Austin Glidden on Twitter. Let me know your thoughts on this. I would love to hear more because, dude, this movie is so stupid. But at the same time, I kind of had a good time. <laughs> I don't think that's the, the last time you're going to hear me kind of say something like that uh, on this episode. But... Uh, Malignant is so fucking stupid, guys. I mean, the the idea, the concept behind it, it makes no sense. It's, I mean, just as as a film, all the components of that make a film, it's awful. But when you get into kind of genre and homage, I mean, 
you know, this this filmmaker, uh, uh, James Wan, is clearly paying homage to a lot of uh, classic films or even, in some cases, uh, pretty under the radar. Like, I mean, there's a, there's a very clear shot that, that harkens back to Next of Kin from 1982, which is an Australian horror film. Uh, and, of course, James Wan is Australian, so, you know, that connection makes sense. But, man, there's some wacky shit in this movie. And because it gets so wacky, I kind of love that. But it's also so stupid, I can hardly enjoy it. I am really torn on that. Maybe uh, I'll be able to talk about that uh, sometime in October. Maybe we'll come back to this uh, when I have more time to produ- or produce. Uh, to um, I, uh, I don't know why I can't think of the word right now. Oh, my God. Something's in my brain. Uh, when you see the movie, you'll get that joke. Anyways, the point is, uh, m- I, I actually encourage you to go check out Malignant, though. Because I don't even know what I'm going to rate it yet. I don't know how I'm going to talk about it. But uh, process is the word I was looking for. But anyways, uh, with Malignant, uh, man, this movie is just so wacky. I, there's a lot of CG in it. And I think the CG looks terrible. And it's stupid. Um, and maybe that's part of the reason. Because if this movie was made in the 80s and it had special effects like something like The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, oh my God, I would probably adore a movie like Malignant. But because it came out now and it's James Wan's kind of heavy-handed, stereotypical type of horror, which this is not as bad as it normally is with him. It's actually a toned-down version of that. But man, like the script doesn't make any sense. Like none of that shit makes sense. But it's like if it had really cool genre stuff from like an era that I appreciate far more, I feel like I'd probably appreciate this movie as is you know, a lot more, but because it's made now and it still feels, it just doesn't feel, I don't even know how to talk about it yet. Again, I haven't processed it. I just think it's so stupid, but like I said, I kind of had a good time because it was so weird by the end, like just, uh, just a weird thing. I encourage you to check it out. At the very least, we don't get enough stuff like this nowadays. So at the very least, it's kind of a treat on that level. I don't know how I feel about this yet. Let me process it some more. While I do that, why don't you hear my thoughts on 310 to Yuma? Three Ten to Yuma is from 1957, directed by Delmer Davies and written by Halsted Wells. Uh, it's based on a book by Elmore Leonard, the the classic author. Uh, the cast: Glenn Ford, Van Heflin. If you don't know who Van Heflin is, you might recognize him if you go check out uh, a picture. Just just Google image that guy. Um, but he he's great. And then there are just a lot of character actors. I mean, if you look at this thing, like if I say the name, it won't matter. So I'm not going to waste my time. But if you see their faces and you're used to watching kind of classic cinema, man, they're in so many things. I mean, you'll just watch and be like, oh, that's that guy. Oh, that's that guy. That kind of a thing. Anyways, this film was re- released uh, August 7th, 1957. And it's about Dave Evans, a small time farmer who's hired to escort dangerous outlaw Ben Wade to Contention City so he can be you know, put on a train to Yuma where Wade will then go to prison. Uh, you guessed it, the train leaves at 310, so 310 to Yuma. <laughs> Anyways, uh, as Evans and Wade wait until 310, uh, the 310 train to Yuma, uh, you know, Wade's gang is racing to free him. This is a simple story, guys. 
Dave needs money or he will lose his farm. Uh, he's offered $200, which at any time uh, in the 19th century was a big deal. Um, and it's coincidentally exactly what he needs to save the farm. You know, so what's his job? He escorts this outlaw to a train. Uh, the outlaw is the leader of a gang, and they are bloodthirsty shooters. So, you know, will Dave get Wade to the 310 to Yuma before Wade's gang catches up? That's the film, and there's not an ounce of fat on this thing. It's just a lean, efficient story. You know, uh, is it often convenient? Absolutely, but I love it, and I think it is perfect just as it is. Now, first off, Glenn Ford as Ben Wade is so good here. And Van Heflin, of course, as the small-time farmer, is uh, Dave is so awesome, too. Uh, they have some really great moments during their journey, uh, such as a moment in a hotel room. I believe it was a hotel. Uh, but either way, they're in a room uh, above this uh, business. I think it's a hotel room. And, uh, you know, there's, there's this dialogue between the two, and it is a perfect scene. It's as perfect as anything from that decade, as far as I'm concerned. I adore it. It is perfection. The tension that is built between these two people as Glenn Ford is trying to be a wise ass and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, his Ben Wade is trying to talk Dave and the doing a variety of things. And he's just trying, he's playing psychological games with him. And it is an absolute just just a beautiful scene but you know uh glenn ford was made to play wade he's perfect wade is an outlaw but you know he's relatively like a relatively fair outlaw actually you know despite showing that he can be a cutthroat as well uh, just as cutthroat as the next you know but you know he he kills a man and then, you know, he goes to the next town and tells the authorities to go help the other people that are still alive and to report it. You know, it's it's one of those things, you know, it's like, all right, he did this terrible thing, but he's also like kind of doing something helpful. You know, he's, he's one of those characters. We've seen them before. He's that type of guy. So his dynamic is really interesting. And even though, you know, the end of the film is very convenient and quite frankly, a stretch, it feels perfect to me. And, you know, it wouldn't if Wade wasn't who he is the entire film. So, um, you know, Glenn Ford's reservedness, you know, for uh, with this character is perfect. So the film has some deceptively complicated character work here and, you know, weaves existential concerns about uh, marriage and financial desperation uh, and even an eventual like literal spiritual cleansing. Everybody, uh, you can see if you haven't seen it before. But anyways, the, the weaving of the existential concerns about marriage and the financial desperation, all of those aspects are really, you know, thanks to the creator of the original source material, author Elmore Leonard. Um, from what I've gathered, and I've never read the book, okay, but from what I've gathered, it's, it's uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, nuances actually uh, can be found in that book. So I, I think I called him Delmer Davies earlier. His name, I believe, is actually just Delmer Daves. I've heard it. Maybe I've only heard it the latter, but I always used to call him Davies, so I get it mixed up. The point is, I'm going to call him Daves now. Uh, but Delmer Daves seems to have, a, uh, you know, brought the Elmore Leonard book to life. So, uh, you know, props to him. Now, you can feel the heat and tension throughout this film. And when I say heat, I mean literally uh, the heat here <laughs> because there's sweat on everyone's brow. Uh, you know, every moment carries weight. In this, and that's part of the tension. And as I said, you know, the film has 
already trimmed the fat and every scene counts. And I feel myself actually caring for Dave, uh, the, the small time farmer, you know. Uh, you know, I, I, I want him to get back home and save his farm. I want him to succeed because he seems like a guy that should. And, you know, sometimes the nice guy finishing last won't cut it. And, you know, <laughs> this nice guy needs to make it home whenever you watch it. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I feel that tension. That's the source of that tension for me is caring for our protagonist. And when you start to question whether the posse will get to uh, Contention City in time before the train to Yuma gets there, the tension is just there the whole time. And I just, uh, I don't know, you can feel it, especially whenever you watch uh, um, Van Heflin's performance as Dave. Uh, his performance really, really gets at home. But you also see this reserved performance by Glenn Ford, as I mentioned earlier, where there's an excitedness. He wants his posse to get there, of course. So, man, the, the tension is absolutely great. Uh, but all of this is enhanced by the awesome black and white photography. The camera moves with intent throughout uh, but, you know, also knowing when to be still. Charles Lawton Jr. was responsible for cinematography here. And, uh, you know, he absolutely knocked it out of the park. This guy also photo photographed uh, Orson Welles, the lady from Shanghai from 1947. Uh, so working with Welles had to be uh, quite a chore. I don't know. I just imagine him being like so particular. So anybody who worked with him, I feel like you automatically kind of get a notch on the belt, so to speak. So anyways, uh, you know, the film is beautiful, especially the restoration used for the Criterion Collection Blu-ray. Um, we did not have a Blu-ray player, funny enough, when we watched it. So I actually watched it on Amazon Prime with my grandfather, and uh, that looks really great, too. So if you get an opportunity, feel free to watch it there. Now, I love movies like this. Personally, I would rather see a film do something that's been done before, but do it exceptionally well in their own way, rather than try to get super wild and fail miserably. So, of course... You know, if a film can do something different and innovative uh, and knock it out of the park, you know, we have another bona fide classic there, right? Of course, I would love it to do both. But 310 to Yuma is one of those films that doesn't really do anything new. It just, you know, does something simple that we've seen before, uh, but it just is unmistakably great at executing it and this is the uh, the John Wick of old westerns you know and by that I mean you know John Wick is a really simple revenge story you know uh you know you killed my fucking dog during my time of grief I will now come kill all of you and thus that is what happens right um like that is literally the only thing of the movie is him getting revenge pretty much and of course they throw in a bunch of little uh fun morsels uh to kind of build the world but that's pretty much the basis of it and 310 to Yuma this dude just needs to get the bad guy to a train and that is the point and that's all the film's interested in doing so that said i think this is a perfect western for my taste it's a 5 out of 5 movie i really really love the 1957 version of 310 to Yuma, not to be mistaken with the 2007 version, which I actually did not like at all because it's really not a Western. It's basically just an action movie. Uh, but uh, this one is perfect, and it is a great, great Western. Uh, I would happily watch it again and again. But if you've seen it and you agree or disagree, please hit me up on, uh, you know, like I said, Twitter. You can hit me up at Austin Glidden or hit uh, Medium Cool Pod up at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, when I come back, 
we will talk about the man who shot Liberty Valance. And after that, we'll go see what Joe's up to. But first, little John Ford. All right, everybody, I'm going to talk a little bit about my first viewing of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance from 1962, directed by John Ford, written by uh, James Warner Bella and Willis Goldbeck. The cast, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, Lee Marvin, and Veer Miles. It was released April 22nd, 1962, budget of $3 million, box office of $8 million, huge success. Now hear me out here, we're talking about 1962 money, movies were not usually like super duper duper expensive, especially movies like this, and especially in a genre that was starting to die, all right, by the time the 60s hit, westerns were not, you know, one in four movies were not westerns by this point, all right, so uh, a lot of changes here, we're coming to the end of the production code in a few years, like after this, but, uh, you know, this is, uh, this was a huge success, it was a uh, not as low budget as you'd think for the time, but it was the 15th highest grossing movie that year, and it made $8 million. So just to give you a little context, and I know 15th sounds like a lot, but when you think of all the movies that come out, come on, that's not that bad. So anyways, it's a film about a senator who became famous for killing a notorious outlaw and how he returns for the funeral of an old friend and, after being berated by the press, decides to tell the truth about his deed. Uh, you know, about what made him famous. This is a John Ford film, so, you know, we get a cast of characters that span from serious and menacing all the way to goofy, and, uh, you know, there is obviously going to be a lot of relief of tension, you know, comic relief and whatnot. I want to start by saying this, though, I, and I, I gave an intentionally kind of vague and simple uh synopsis there, but I'm going to kind of break it down a bit more as we go, and I don't want to give away too much because I actually didn't know anything about this movie. I had intentionally kept blind for so long because I, I had talked about uh, not being a huge John Ford fan, both on this podcast and just with my friends in the past, and they always told me one of his movies, one of his movies. They're like, you have to see this. I think you'll like this if you're going to like any of them, and it was The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and so I want to start by saying this, all right? Right off the bat, I'm not a huge John Ford fan. I've already said this. I recognize his talent, contributions to the medium, and his great sto storytelling skill, okay? I, I see that and agree with that. But a lot of his choices, though not you know inherently bad, are things I do not appreciate on a personal level. It just doesn't connect. So first, for example... You know, Ford generally overuses comic relief, in my opinion, which I recognize was common for studio pictures at the time. Um, but, you know, The Searchers is a great example of an unbelievable film that at times suffers from absolutely unnecessary and distracting comic relief. Now, again, I'm saying this as a millennial that was born, you know, 20, almost 20 years or 30 years after The Searchers came out, I recognize the lens I'm seeing this through. I saw The Searchers for the first time in like 2010 or something. All right, so I recognize that there is a huge gap of time and the history behind it. And that's largely why I appreciate The Searchers. But here's the thing. My second hang-up is I have... Uh, that I have is how he uses female love interests and often how melodramatic it becomes. And third, my final point for now at least, is how, you know, often he hangs his hat on John Wayne. 
and I'll come back to John Wayne momentarily. But I just, I just want to say this. With the exception of a few things, all of the things I just said, the, the love interests, uh, his, his, over, his um, uh, uh, over-reliance on John Wayne's performances, and uh, you know his comic relief, all, like this film, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, is an exception. All right, and this is by far my favorite Ford film. My friends who told me to watch this were right. Uh, I am actually a big fan of this, and I'm so happy uh, to like this one, to be honest. I really did like it, though. And I'm going to talk a little bit of why I did. I can't stress enough how much you should see this if you haven't. Um, it might be hard for some people to see because this is the type of Western that does feel like an old Western. feels like the type of Western that your grandparents would watch. But if you're into film history like me and you're a big film nerd, it doesn't really feel that bad. I just imagine someone who's not used to watching Westerns like this, this will be the one you dreaded because it has the John Wayne. And there's a lot of kind of like traditional um, uh, Western stuff in it. But that's because John Ford essentially created that. Like he kind of set the the bar right on what Westerns are at the time. So. You know, uh, I really encourage you to give this a try if you can go with an open mind. I think it's absolutely great. So as I alluded to, I'm generally not a John Wayne fan, period. I hate the way he talks. Uh, I hate his macho, patriotic, hyper-masculine demeanor. And I do not think he has a great range. He is exactly what he needs to be. And a lot of people like that. I think a lot of it's nostalgia. I think a lot of it is I watched this stuff with my father and my grandfather. And, you know, kind of like um, kind of like James Bond. Like, let's be honest. Most James Bond movies are not good. But you, but you maybe grew up watching those movies with your dad. And you have a nostalgia to it. And I get it. I get it. I get it. All right. And that's fine. And that's valid. But, uh, you know, John Wayne, I think, falls into that. I honestly don't think he's that good. So I just I, I genuinely can't figure out why people uh, love him as much as they do. I'm not saying he's bad. He's just like this very weird entity in my cinematic view. Um, so, uh, you know, guess what? He's not in the man who shot Liberty Valance all that much. OK, probably in about a quarter of it. So, I mean, he's in throughout, but I'm just saying, like, you know, if you calculate all the time, it's probably a quarter of the film. So, you know, he though he is top billed in the credits, you know, for a reason, because he is very important to the story. I mean, vital. But he's used sparingly, and this really worked for me. Because, you know, these little moments with his character, Tom Donovan, they, you know, it, it gives me, you know, just what I need and never overstates its welcome. So that's a big deal for me, and I'm all about this use of Wayne. So, uh, you know, this is also, you know, the only film John Wayne uses the term pilgrim. Like, well, howdy there, pilgrim. You know, like when people equate the term pilgrim when talking to someone, uh, you know, they equate that with John Wayne, but this is the only film he ever does it in, to be honest. So if you ever want to see, uh, <laughs> you know, him using the pilgrim lines, watch this film. You know, so uh, I always thought it felt phony. And, you know, it got so annoying uh, at first in the movie, uh, but it was honestly really fun to see where it originated, and, and eventually I got over it. But I absolutely adore Jimmy Stewart. And, you know, he, he's, he's in it m most of the time in this film. You know, he takes up a large, large portion of this film, probably 85%, 90% of it. So that's automatically a plus for me. 
His senator character, Ransom Stoddard, or Rans, uh, as many of them call him, uh, he's a passionate, empathetic, bold, and supportive character. He, you know, earned the people of Shinbone. God, that is a stupid name for a town. But <laughs> uh, Shinbone is where they are. But anyways, the people of Shinbone trust Rans. And, you know, he earned it, and he fought for these people, and he has big ideas and aspirations, but they are threatened by the dreaded outlaw Liberty Valance. Now, Lee Marvin is so great as Liberty Valance. Uh, I love these old Lee Marvin westerns. He's in a Bud Bedecker film called Seven Men From Now from 1956, uh, and uh, he's absolutely great in that as well. And in in uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance, he is violent and sleazy, and he's just a downright bully. All right, and uh, he's very believable within the context of the film. He is a uh, man. I really love this performance. I mean, this might be one of my all time favorite uh, Western villains. Is Lee Marvin in this film? I love him. Uh, everyone knows. Uh, everyone in the town of Shinbone knows Valance. Uh, and everyone fears him, especially the stupid Marshall played by Andy Devine, who plays the comic relief. He's so annoying. I think he is so annoying. Even my dad was like, oh, God. you Because know? <laughs> he's just this cowardly Marshall. But, dude, this guy sucks. I mean, he it's an awesome performance. I just hate this character. Uh, but, yeah, uh, um, what what I just call him? Andy Devine. He's great. I think he does a really, really good job, but I hate this character. And this is exactly what I'm talking about when I say Ford overuses comic relief. But luckily, the Marshal does not overdo it in this. When he's on the screen, um, you know, it's it's just enough where it's like he toes that line of like, you're getting on my nerves. This is going to ruin the movie. He never does, luckily. So Ford still does the thing I hate in this movie, but it's so little, it never gets to the point of pushing me over. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, though, is, you know, it is an exception to this, luckily, and, uh, you know, back to Lee Marvin, he is hilarious to me, because he calls Rance dude all the time, he's like, hey there, dude, <laughs> I just kind of sound like the Big Lebowski guy, but, you know, he's just like, you better watch it, dude, and he just, like, calls them dude, I think it's, like, super funny, and, and just the best, it's, it's just very funny to hear dude um, so much in a film from 1962, so, um, yeah, it's great. Uh, there is a signature scene where Rance and Valance face off, okay? And both performances are so great, guys. I know I'm really putting this movie over, but I'm actually surprised by how much I liked a John Ford movie. I mean, this is really good stuff here. And, uh, you know, there is a tension to this interaction between Rance and Valance. There's blood. There's bravado. Again, blood. I'm talking like blood, too, uh, which is pretty cool because you don't usually see a whole lot of blood beyond just like a little smear on clothes back in these old westerns, but there's like blood, like I said, a lot of vibra uh, vibrato, <laughs> bravado is what I meant to say, and um, you know, it's really the culmination of everything that had happened and been built prior, coming back to Ford's storytelling prowess, such a great scene, and it really shows off Ford's storytelling talent here, because once you get to the scene, you realize how important everything before it was and uh, he's just really really good at that. Now this film is beautifully shot in I don't know how to pronounce this exactly, but Jan's Conejo Ranch uh, in Thousand Oaks, California. But most of the film was actually shot on uh, sound stages at Paramount or MGM sets uh, or both, depending on the sources you listen to. 
Um, but the film has a beauty to it. It really, really does. And this is largely due, again, to the black and white photography. I love black and white photography like this. And uh, William H. Clothier uh, is the cinematographer here, and he has some skills. Uh, really great work. Now, John Ford is a great storyteller, as I've mentioned, regardless of how I feel about his use of love interest and comic relief and, you know, reliance on John Wayne in movies like this. Well, not this one specifically, but uh, other films he worked with him on. Uh, but this and The Searchers are exemplars of his skill of storytelling in that department. He's he's really, really up there with the greats, especially of, the, of his generation. And like most movies of the time, there are weird racial things. And I just want to touch on this uh, because this is just going to happen. When you go back and watch films like this, it doesn't make the film bad, especially if you look at it through history. It does not make these things right. And I'm not justifying any of these things, but you have to kind of keep that lens in mind, historical lens when you're watching these things. And to me, it actually adds to the experience because I kind of learned things about history as it relates to film. But I digress. Uh, so there's some there's one weird racial thing that kind of stood out to me, never pulled me out of it in large part because they don't treat this character all that bad. But it's just kind of like a weird thing. John Wayne's. Uh, uh, Tom Donovan has a black quote helper <laughs> of sorts named Pompey. And, uh, you know, he's played by the prolific black actor, Woody Strode, who was working. Uh, I mean, man, he worked, started in the early forties and went all the way to the mid nineties, this guy. Uh, so he did a lot of work and he went through a lot of cinematic generations of things kind of changing. Uh, so kudos to him. Uh, but you know, even for the time in 1962, man, it kind of feels a little weird. Um, and it's not that it's so much inaccurate that someone like, uh, you know, Tom Donovan would have a helper like this, because uh, this was also, you know, post Civil War. Uh, so, you know, it's not so much that this guy is a straight up slave, but he's also kind of basically a slave. Uh, but they were, um, you know, they were never brutal to Pompey in this or anything. They were never uh, super. Uh, rude or demeaning, uh, you know, if anything, it, it, Pompey kind of comes off like a badass, to be honest, which I was actually surprised. You know, he's always the guy who, uh, who evens the playing field when Tom Donovan is in, like, facing off with some bad guys and about to start a ruckus, and Pompey always comes out with his shotgun, and they're just, like, side by side. You know, he never really looks like a weak character in the film, I didn't think. Um, and so, uh, on that note, I actually appreciated it. And again, we're talking about a, uh, you know, a, a Western that takes place in the 1800s. So this would also, uh, you know, have been the case, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know, just like f film in these kind of eras can kind of be weird anyways, moving on. Uh, but you know, what's interesting about the man who shot Liberty Valance, it takes place during that transitional period when, you know, as Roger Ebert might have put it, you know, uh, the rule of force gave way to the rule of law and when literacy began to gain a foothold. You know, it asks the question, does a man need to carry a gun in order to disagree or state an opinion? The entire film seems to point toward, you know, the gun argument, an argument we still fight about today, no less. You know, of course, the, the film doesn't blatantly say this, but it does act it out to some degree and in many ways kind of metaphorically. Uh, but, you know, you have the learned college lawyer, uh, 
you know, which is Jimmy Stewart's character coming into, of course, he's a senator, you know, in the film. If you see the film, you'll get it because there's two different time periods at play. And in the future time period or the present time period, if you will, you know, uh, he is a senator. But, you know, he started as a lawyer is the point. And so, you know, you have you have this, you know, learned uh, lawyer character, you know, coming into a place where no one is really educated properly. You know, we see him begin to change the territory and, you know, teach people to read and 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 to uh, uh, to to write and to do these kind of basic things that he believes everyone should be able to do. And you start to kind of see a change of how we think about civilization. But as we see him start to kind of change the territory, this town and uh, and, you know, uh, help them get more educated. There are still those in power, you know, and those whose power is held within the lack of education. And when people get smart, they no longer can control the smart people. So, you know, Valance and his gang are the outlaws trying to keep the people down. And what's interesting about this is, you know, Rance turns to a gun in the film, like eventually he turns to a gun and, you know, he's always firmly on the side of the law, but he will do what he has to do to make sure that it is upheld and obeyed and that people are protected. And, you know, uh, I mean, to an extent, he's braver than he should be <laughs> pretty much uh, for his own good kind of a thing. Uh, but Donovan represents the quote good. And I use air quotes. You can't see me, of course, but I use air quotes because I thought he was an asshole, to be honest. Again, I'm not a John Ford fan, but even Donovan, I think he's supposed to be like the cool, good guy, but I just think he's a fucking asshole. But anyways, I digress. Uh, you know, he is the, quote, good uh, of the Old West, and Rance is the good of the new. And, and, you know, in a very loose way, to make a point, I feel like this could be offensive, but that's not the point. Just try to run with me, roll with me here, okay? Uh, but they're kind of like the Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X of the Old West, so to speak, except for white and fighting for democracy over fascism, you know, rather than racial justice and equity. But, uh, you know, two men aiming for the same outcome, but taking two different paths to get there. But then you have the fact that everyone in Shinbone hates Liberty Valance and his two-man pos uh, two posse, played perfectly, by the way, by Lee Van Cleef and Struther Martin. Uh, the latter is a giggling fool through the whole thing. He's great. Uh, but anyways, uh, you know, everyone hates Valance, yet everyone is too afraid of him to do anything. Donovan could do something. I mean, it's freaking John Wayne, okay? Uh, but we see Donovan you know, best and intimidate him throughout the film. But Donovan is in love with Hallie, the female lead of the film. So, um, you know, it's weird. So having Valance around to deal with Rance is a decent way to get Hallie to stay with Donovan, John Wayne's character. So John Wayne's character is basically just like, oh, okay, well, if Valance will take care of this Rance guy, then I'll get I'll get my lady. You know what I mean? That kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, but you also see that she's clearly having, like, feelings are growing for Rance. There's, like, the whole, like, love triangle thing going on, and Donovan gets jealous. I mean, there's just a lot going on. And all that to say, like I said, you know, there's just a lot going on in this film uh, that, that could easily be missed. Uh, but Ford is a great storyteller, as I have said many times already, and he juggles all of this very, very well. And the film never feels rushed or too long or too short. It feels just right. The pacing is just right for this tale. 
and it is certainly one to experience. Now, in the storytelling department, Ford has a lot to work with, a lot more to work with uh, than 310 Yuma, but personally, I prefer 310 to Yuma or Westerns like it because that just kind of fits. It's like my cup of tea, right? But the man who shot Liberty Valance is doing a whole lot more than 310 to Yuma, okay? And though I am giving um, the man who shot Liberty Valance four and a half out of five, it is an easy argument to make that Liberty Valance is more impressive and more objectively just better than 310 to Yuma, okay? I mean, it is it is actually a really really great film. Uh, if you've seen The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and you agree or disagree, again, always hit us up at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Definitely, uh, you, you're welcome to hit me up on Twitter at Austin Glidden. And, um, you know, if you want to explain to me why you like John Ford, by all means, do so on Instagram or Twitter. You can uh, tag Medium Cool Pod and I, it will get to me eventually. Uh, so I would love to hear your thoughts. Hey, I'm going to jump over to our next little segment here to talk with Joe about Brian De Palma. We're going to hit on two more movies. So there's a lot going on today here on Medium Cool. Thank you guys for sticking around. Let's go see what Joe's up to. All right, everybody. Uh, last Saturday, 9-11 was it's an unfortunate birthday, but was Brian De Palma's birthday. So we're here to celebrate uh, by watching Blowout and Scarface, which we did, and we is me and Joe. Joe is back with us. Go ahead and say hi, Joe. What's up, everybody? Sup. Uh, <laughs> we're, starting, uh, we're starting with my pick this time just because I, I, I wanted to end on yours. I don't know why. I just feel like that's <laughs> like, it's also the bigger title. I don't know. I just think it'd be a good ending. Uh, right. But my pick uh, for De Palma was Blowout from 1981. It was written and directed by Brian De Palma. Cast uh, was John Travolta, Nancy Allen, John Lithgow, and Dennis Franz. Uh, there are other people in it, of course, but these are kind of the main uh, for uh, release date was July 24th, 1981, with a budget of $18 million, and it only made $13.8 million in the box office. Ooh, Bonafide flop, this thing, okay? Mm-hmm. To the extent that, um, ironically, uh, this is the film that led Tarantino to hiring Travolta to play Vincent in Pulp Fiction, which reinvigorated mm-hmm. his career. But what's yeah. funny is the film that did that is also the film that damaged Travolta's career to <laughs> the point that he almost like didn't make it. Uh, so uh, yeah, just fun stuff with this movie. But this is also, I was excited to rewatch it because I hadn't seen it in a few years. I've seen it multiple times, but it was all like around the same time. So yeah. uh, like, I don't think I've watched it since I bought the Criterion Blu-ray of it. So I was excited to throw that in and rewatch it because this was a contender for my favorite De Palma film. Uh, mm-hmm. And I didn't know how I felt about it now. We'll talk about that here. But uh, so I was a big fan of this and I knew you hadn't seen it. And I knew, I know you love Nancy Allen. So I thought mm-hmm. this is like a great little segue. So the yes. film uh, follows Jack Terry, who's a master sound recordist and uh, works on B horror movies. And late one evening, he's recording nature sounds in a nearby wooded park for use in his movies when he hears something unexpected through his sound equipment and records it. Curiosity gets the better of him when the media become involved, 
and he begins to unravel the pieces of a nefarious conspiracy. And, uh, you know, as he struggles to survive against the shadowy enemies and expose the truth, he does not know whom he can trust. Blowout is a mixture of Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up from 1966, Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation in 1974, and any one of Hitchcock's masterful thrillers like Strangers on a Train, Rear Window, Psycho, uh, and uh, De Palma's overall aesthetic. Like, he has a very specific look and sound and feel to his movies, and so you get that uh, that aesthetic of, of the split focus and the split screen techniques, the uh, the pacing, the cheesiness at times, which I think we can yep. all say De Palma gets very cheesy, but almost in like a campy <laughs> horror movie way, like where it's like yeah. still fun to watch, but it's yeah. almost unbearable sometimes. We'll get there. Um, <laughs> so anyways, uh, you know, Antonioni's blow up, for example, is about a photographer who takes a photo in a park and begins to obsess over a little detail in his photo that could lead to a conspiracy and murder, Blowout is about a studio audio engineer who captures an interesting event on his recording device and obsesses over it, thinking it could lead to a conspiracy and a murder. And The Conversation, which stars Gene Hackman as the audio expert, is equally as obsessed uh, for different reasons, not unlike, though, Jack Terry, uh, played by John Travolta here. And, uh, you know, the structure of Blowout... You know, the things we see and don't see, the visual storytelling, uh, the progression is in the vein of like a Hitchcock classic. I mean, it really kind of hits on a lot of levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, Blowout is clearly emulating these films that I mentioned before, but something about it feels all its own to me. Maybe it's uh, the terribly cheesy score, which is kind of across yes. all, uh, all De Palma films at this time. I mean, just watch body double to see that in spades um yeah. but yeah you know you have the terribly cheesy score or travolta makes these faces sometimes that confuse the hell out of me you know like <laughs> i'm like what are you feeling right now i don't know what's going on um yeah. you know i just I, I really love these aspects of it um and you know not to mention the ridiculous performances especially by nancy allen and dennis franz at times you know dennis franz yeah. is such a cartoon in this, but it's like, oh, I yeah. love him so much. Like I love it so much. So there are a lot of things about the movie that I could see one getting hung up on, to be honest. And I think you probably need to watch this in a certain mood, you know, to fully kind of embrace blowout in its entirety. But the storytelling is top notch. Regardless seeds are planted in the film and we see those seeds break the surface uh, and begin to bloom exactly when we need to. And I think that's really important. I think that's the poem's strength. And, you know, yeah. De Palma is uh, a bit of a puppet master here as well, like he was with Dress to Kill or Body Double, etc. He's good at telling these types of stories and just kind of pulling you along. And so that's, I think, what really gets me with De Palma is that almost Hitchcock level. He's not on that level, but he uses a lot of these strategies that Hitchcock used in his storytelling and in his mysteries that really can pull you along despite what one could perceive as flaws. So, yes. Joe... Before we dig in, I'll ask you this. Where, you, were you like De Palma, like a De Palma puppet and led through the film exactly how De Palma wanted you to be? Or did you get hung up on, you know, something or did you get hung up somewhere and just couldn't quite get on board? Uh, maybe somewhere in the middle. Um, I, I, there were definitely times I was kind of rolling my eyes and I'm like, oh, you know, this is sort of cheesy you know and then there's other times i was really into it um 
I, I do love that visual style. I was sitting there watching it and I was, and now this is the first time I've ever seen this. And the first thing I thought was, this is, this is like Ang Lee's uh, Hulk movie. Like the way that there's all the, the split screens and the, and even the kind of like overlay kind of effects where there's, you know, you see a character's face against a background where something else is going on. Split and focus. It's, and yeah. It's, yeah. And it's, it's this real cool kind of, it's storytelling on on two different levels right at the same time which is which is kind of fun uh and there there's a, a neat shot at the end and I, i'm sure we'll get to it there's a really neat shot at the end with the, the with fireworks going on um that that i both disliked and really liked so i don't know how that happened but um on one hand i'm like oh that kind of looks terrible but you know that's kind of like against a, a modern lens i think yeah but then i'm like for the time that would have been really cool like I would imagine most of the people who saw that movie in the theater would have never seen a shot like that at the time. And so on that, on that level, it's really cool. And, you know, and what he was doing was, was amazing. So, um, you know, I, it, as you said, that, that cheesiness, that over the topness is there at times that um, I, I really thought the score at the, um, at the end during the climax was, was kind of a bad spot too. Dude. Where I'm like, it's, it, it would be really cool if it was, if it was suspenseful and, you know, he used like this, these suspenseful beats and instead it's this very almost like romantic sweeping kind of heroic thing. And I'm like, uh, this is, you know, this kind of is fighting against itself. I don't know. But um, yeah, I, I would say I'm, I'm kind of a mixed bag um, overall. Um, there, there were certain things I really loved. Um, there was one scene that uh, mirrored um, a scene in De Palma's Dress to Kill that I really, I thought was pretty cool. But at the same time, you know, against that scene, and I'm talking about the elevator scene in Dress to Kill. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, ironically involving Nancy Allen as well, I believe. Um, but here um, it's it's involving someone else, but it's, it takes place in a public restroom and it doesn't quite reach the same heights. Um, I would say it's maybe a 50% even, you know, it's like, well, I see what you're doing here, but, you know, I don't, I'm not going to buy it completely. I can't really buy it completely, especially compared to that scene, which I think is, which is one of the, the, the dress to kill scene is one of the early scenes that I saw that absolutely terrified me. I mean, that came out in 80 and I would right have been before this. Yeah. And I would have been very, very young at the time. And, and I remember seeing it at some point on TV and it scared the shit out of me. And this, <laughs> this scene, so much. yeah, this scene, not so much, you know, um, uh, even, you know, even, you know, the six year old me, seven year old me would, would have kind of been like, yeah, I get it, but you know, not that scary. Yeah. 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 It's, um, you know, I had an interesting experience watching blowout this time. Again, I've seen it many times. The first time I saw it was, um, probably in 2012 or 13. And I was going through a De Palma marathon where I was just hammering. That's where I first saw dress to kill. Uh, it's the mm -hmm. first time that I saw, um, uh, blowout and uh, body double and I'd already seen Scarface and the Untouchables uh, but I rewatched Carrie because I had never seen that off of television at that time so I yeah. watched that I saw Phantom of the Paradise I rewatched Sisters I saw Raising Cain which is not great uh, and <laughs> Casualties of War and Mission Impossible which I love from 96 uh -huh. I actually think that's a gr like I love that movie uh, I really yeah. like Mission Impossible um, and I, I just, Femme Fatale, The Black D uh, Dahlia, all of that was out at the time. And so I was just like knocking a lot of this stuff out. And Blowout was like, 
the uh pardon the pun like blowout success for me right like yeah. like uh-huh. that was i was like man yes there are like over the top um performances and sure. de palma is again using pino Donaggio for the music like he did mm-hmm. in body double like he did you know prior and it's like just the worst. <laughs> like, like <laughs> I just don't like Pino Donaggio's like okay. music because it just never, ever. I mean, he did Dress to Kill also. And if you think of the opening scene of Dress to Kill, Angie mm-hmm. Dickinson is in the shower in a dream yeah. sequence that you don't know, and she's like touching herself and like close ups right. on her boobs, and like she yeah. sees her husband, and then like there's a murder that comes around, and kills her, but then she like wakes up, and then yeah. you know then. I don't know. It's but that sequence is like a fucking lifetime movie from 1980. It's yeah, just the yeah. worst. I yeah. love that movie, by the way. I mean, that's like a that's like an Italian Gallo film in America. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah, really I'll awesome. But um, so like Blowout. It's interesting because like De Palma came up with the concept of this story while he was actually doing post production uh, mm-hmm. with audio and stuff on Dress to Kill, like, after that. And uh, so he kind of came up with this idea. And another thing that's really funny is Pacino was supposed to play Jack Terry. Like, that was his original idea. And I can't even imagine this, Joe. I feel like it could be worse. Yeah. Don't you think? Like, I don't feel like I need the presence of Pacino in these moments. I actually think Travolta was a good choice, even though it's not, like, the greatest but sure. like it's you know I I like I like uh, I like that yeah dynamic there. But yeah, Nancy That's... Allen is like a cartoon. Uh, Dennis uh-huh. Franz is probably the most cartoon. John yeah. Lithgow is like weird. He's... I I like love him. Yeah, but it's like he's, he's... oddly vanilla though in this movie too. <laughs> he's oddly just like so just there, and he yeah. just kind of has this. You know, he's kind of you know he's this kind of cold blooded killer type. But he's also like just your average smiley guy on the street too, at times. And it's just like, I, yeah, I don't know. Like he he perplexed me a little bit. You know, usually when I'm like, oh, John Lithgow, this is gonna be great, and it was just kind of like he was there doing things, and I was like, okay, well, you're doing stuff, yeah. <laughs> but what what else? And he never really did anything. He never really did anything incredible to me. But you know, I mean, he's John Lithgow, so you know. It, it still is. It's still better than not John Lithgow. So <laughs> I just love like, I mean, the, the real I want to get into the other things in a moment, but sure. the, the the real I'll start here. The, the, the real kind of kicker on blowout, I think, is uh, the writing. And I'm not talking about the dialogue, per se. I'm talking about the structure of the film, the plot, yeah. uh, how that unfolds. I mean, this really is kind of an amalgam of of blow up the conversation in Hitchcock. I mean, if you could kind of throw those together, you touched on the split screen sequences, the split focus, these, those two things, if anyone, and I'm sure if you went back and watched them, you'd pick up on these things, but a lot of that 80s stuff, not counting Scarface, he doesn't really use a lot of that very much there. Uh, But like, you know, in all of his stuff around that time, he became, even in like Bonfire for the Vanities or whatever that's called, like he used like split screen shit, you know? Uh, if you've never seen Joe, I'm saying this to you, but also the listeners, if you've never yeah. seen the split screen sequence from Sisters, have you ever seen Sisters? I've never seen Sisters, no. Dude, horror movie. That's something we should make yeah. ourselves watch this October, but you should just watch yeah. it. He has incredible split screen sequences in that where he has two cameras 
moving, filming the same scene at the same time, but you're getting uh-huh. two different perspectives on each side, right? So, like, you yeah. follow a detective up to a door, but then on the other side, you're in the room with the person they're going to see, and you can kind of see both perspectives. It's, like, awesome. But it's it's De Palma here that influenced Tarantino on something like Kill Bill, where mm-hmm. um, where uh, El Dri- Ellie Driver, or whatever her name is, is yeah. going to kill... Yes, uh, yes, kiddo in the hospital, mm-hmm. and she's whistling that song. They have the split screen. That is De Palma, like unmistakably. Yes. But then, mm-hmm. like I've always found split focus so weird because, for example, when he's like recording sounds in the woods, and you have that owl, it makes it look yeah. like the owl is gigantic, and, yeah. <laughs> and he's like yeah. little in the back because everything's in focus. Usually, depth of field helps us have like mm-hmm. make sense in our brain's size and relativity. Uh, but right. with split focus, it kind of like fucks with you. But he uses it all the time, not only in this, but in most De Palma films I've seen. So he has like, I appreciate his style, even if I don't always think, even if I often think it's just cool and not necessarily necessary, um, yeah. which that was kind of a, a redundant statement. But um, <laughs> but I think, but all of that to say, I really do think that the structure of this film works really well. And it works just like Body Double and it works just like uh, uh, Dress to Kill. Uh-huh. Where uh, you're given all of these visual cues, or or in this case, audio cues, like the uh, mm-hmm. the watch with the uh, the zip, like zip, yeah, zip, yeah, yeah, and you get that way early in the film, mm-hmm. and then it's not until halfway through that you find out what that is, and then it's uh-huh. not until later that you find out what it does. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah, that's the yeah. puppeteer. That's the puppeteer thing, the puppet master, where he's drawing you in the same way Hitchcock did, and say. Uh, Psycho, where you know you see uh, the main actress getting ready and packing her bags after she's supposed to take the money to the bank, but she's in her yeah. apartment, and then it slowly pans over to the bed, and you see the money there, and you're like, oh, shit, she didn't take yeah. the money, and she's leaving, but they never say a word. You just pick right. up on or like Rear Window, the opening of Rear Window. That's why I put these movies as references, because uh-huh. the opening of Rear Window, you learn everything you need to know about Jimmy Stewart's character in the first pan while mm-hmm. the credits are rolling, because you see yeah. the camera on a desk, and then you see a picture of a car wreck, and then you see his legs broken, mm-hmm. and then you see that he's just, like, miserable, <laughs> like, yeah. sitting in this place, you know, or however uh-huh. the sequence goes, but in theory, that's how it works, and it's like, you learn, oh, okay, this guy's a photographer, he got hit by this wheel, broke mm-hmm. his leg, now he's stuck in his apartment, he hates it. Like, they don't say a word, but in a few seconds, that efficiency is there, and I think De Palma really employs that kind of classic. They don't make them like they used to filmmaking, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that really pulls me along. Even watching it this time, I did find a lot of the cheesiness and a lot of the performances and stuff. Maybe I just wasn't in the right frame of mind to like them as much as I did before. Uh-huh. Um, but I still love this movie. Did you find that the story was able to pull you through enough where you were like pretty on board with this movie despite its flaws or did the flaws actually end up getting you hung up i i don't know um i I guess it was almost moment to moment you know there were times when you know i was just going along with it i'm like okay all right now he's you know now he's doing this now the news guy is here you know now you know they're you know of course they're asking him to do this and this and this and you know and i'm like okay this i'm working on this and then and then something happens and i'm just like I don't know. I don't know. And and it's funny because I watched, um, you know, we, we talked about Scarface and this is going to, this will come up again later, 
because I, I, again, I watched Scarface with my girlfriend uh, last night and, um, and she kind of gave me this, you know, I, I just want to know her perspective on it. And she gave me this thing where she was like, I don't, I don't know if that's how things really work, you know? And, and it's funny because it, that's, it kind of made me think that's how I felt about blowout that there were times where I was like, okay, well, this beat is, you know, like this stuff is happening. Okay. Of course they're going to do this, but at the same time, like in a, in this sort of a situation, is this really what's going to happen? Are we really going to, you know, is he really just, he's running around and, you know, he's running around doing all this stuff and he's like, Hey, we're going to disappear. And it's like, but we're going to do all of this stuff in the meantime and nothing's going to happen to us. You know, it's like, it's kind of, it's sort of like, it's this mix that that the Palma has that he kind of, I, I think it kind of happens a fair amount for him that, and you know, and it's a thing where it's like, this is going to happen and we're going to have, we have to build the suspense for this thing. And well, and if it doesn't really make sense, who really cares, you know, because you know, or, or, or if the, the reality is off a bit, who really cares? Because, you know, we're, we're playing the game a little bit. It's like, just go with the game. If you can go with the game, then it, it can work for you. Um, but if it's kind of a, you know, if it's hit or miss or if it, you know, it, sometimes you're just kind of like, ah, it pulled me out just a little bit. That, that's probably what I would say. It pulled me out just a little bit here and there, but for on the whole, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll go along with it. Yeah. Um, so it, it was, it was, it's sort of a, yeah, yes and no. So, which is, you know, this, which is this, um, this kind of uh, duality that I think that he, he does very well for better or worse even. Yeah. I think even beyond the structure of the film and uh, like the writing on that, on that side of things, mm-hmm. uh, I think the production is so great. Uh, you yeah. kind of touched on a few things, uh, mm-hmm. but like this is the first film apparently that De Palma used a steady cam, which I'm kind of surprised oh. by, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so there's like some really cool flowing movement. Uh, I love the opening sequence of the B movie. I lo- he is obsessed yes. with that. Yeah, yeah. He uses well, the same say, thing in in Body Double. Yeah, well, and you and you were talking about Dress to Kill that first scene where you know it's it's all this close up and she's you know Angie Dickinson's naked and she's doing this and that and I mean and literally the opening scene here is like it's a sorority house and I'm like what is all of this like tawdriness all of this like just out of nowhere and it's like you know and it's like naked women and then people are having sex and then there's like this other girl and she's you know by herself doing stuff and you know and i'm like what is going and then it's like <laughs> oh okay so he's it's both him doing this thing and he's also kind of lampooning it and you know lampooning it as a device in, in horror movies but he's but it's also something he's doing actively in movies so it's like is he is he lampooning himself i don't know but you know yeah. he's clearly making fun of stuff but he's also doing it and then he also does it a couple of movies from now. He also did it in the previous movie. It's like, okay, that makes sense, but it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, he's he's such a weird dude. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I still need, I feel ashamed that I haven't done this. I didn't even think of doing it before this. I should have. Noah Baumbach oh. uh, had, like, I think it was a full documentary, actually, about De Palma, where he just yeah. interviews him and does that whole thing. And I can't remember if I've actually seen it or if yeah, I've only yeah, seen yeah. clips. I need to go back and watch it regardless because I don't remember. But I would. Yeah. I think I watched it, but I just can't yeah. remember. Yeah, it's um, weird. I watched it. Um, I I saw it, and I don't remember much of it. Yeah, and for it's not. Some reason. I can't imagine it being bad. I just think it's a lot yeah. of information for me to retain about something I probably didn't care enough mm-hmm. to retain. 
um, at yeah. the time, and I, I wish I did because I would love to know some of that information. But that's a good thing if you want some background on why De Palma mm -hmm. made certain choices because I would love to watch it and see why he keeps working with fucking Pino Donaggio, this music <laughs> guy. I can't stand this guy's compose compositions. Yeah. They're like, the, that pulls me out of most things. Like, I've uh. mentioned Body Double. Whenever he's like goes down the tunnel and he's chasing the bad guy and he has like his claustrophobic episode and uh, oh. the really uh, beautiful love interest woman comes out and like oh. walks him out. And then they have this like random makeout sesh after they just met, which was like super <laughs> weird. And the camera's like spinning around them and it's terrible oh. green screen like uh, behind them. It looks awful. And you have this terrible cheesy music. It sounds yeah. like a, it looks like a joke. And yeah, I can't yeah. like... Are you being serious or are you being cheeky right now? Because if you're being cheeky, I can laugh at it. Right. If you're being right. serious, this has become a criticism, you know. And I love Body Double for the same reasons yeah. I love this, though I think this is not as ridiculous as Body Double. But uh, like, like I love Body Double also because the structure of the film is so good. Like I love the story, and and he just pulls me along. I mean, in Dress to Kill, you see. The killer, quote unquote, I'll just say that very vaguely, all yeah. the time in the film. Like, yeah. like you see them all the time and you don't know it until later. So when you go back, you can find all these little moments like, oh, this makes sense. The killer was here for this scene. They were here in this pan across. They were here for X, Y, Z. And it's uh, it's really awesome. And so anyways, back to Blowout. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think the writing was good, but the production... And the Steadicam stuff. And there's that sequence where, excuse me, where, uh, I almost said De Palma, where uh, Travolta's Jack Terry is looking mm -hmm. through all of his reels of audio. And the yeah. camera's just spinning in a circle, uh, almost mm -hmm. reminiscent of something like a Gaspar Noé uh, movie, like Irreversible or or Enter the Void or something. Like some weird, because you have this like repeating, like, wom, 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 wom. and as he's playing more yes. sounds, there are just all these sounds building up the tension, and it's just the camera's just spinning in a circle, and Travolta's mm -hmm. always like blocked where he needs to be, and mm -hmm. he is getting frustrated because all of his tapes have been erased. This isn't yeah. a major spoiler or anything. You can just go watch the freaking movie if you haven't seen it. But uh, I, I, I love <laughs> that sequence. Oh my god, yeah. it's 40 years old. You're right. Holy shit, I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, but anyways, like I love that scene. That was actually possibly the sequence that made me love it the first time. Because okay. again, it goes back to nothing's being said. You actually don't even really know what he's doing. Like like in that scene until the very next scene. But like everything that's happening in the film, if you don't know what's going on, they tell you in a certain way, not just blatant exposition. There's usually a reason to tell you what's happening at some point. So if you just let it go and you just like move along with the film and just like mm -hmm. let him puppeteer you, right? You yes, will get everything yes. you need. And so mm -hmm. I think the production is really good at kind of emphasizing the visual storytelling, the choices mm -hmm. made, uh, the way just things look. Man, I love the way this movie looks. And that's, I'm not the only person. I mean, you can look this up and a lot of people praise mm -hmm. the, the, the visual style of this, but also yeah. just that writing. I think that's great, but I, I want to jump to this, and you can touch on this if you want, but I sure. also want to jump to the performances because they're ridiculous, and they are campy as fuck sometimes. Yes. And as someone, you, as someone who loves campy horror movies, and you can uh. watch, all, like, fucking Friday the 13th Part 5 or something is your favorite, 
I mean, uh-huh. we're talking about you here. How yeah. do you handle acting like this? Do you give stuff a pass when it's in like a campy horror movie? Or uh-huh. can you also give it a pass in something like this just as like a silly thing? Maybe you can't take yeah. it seriously, but it's like still entertaining to you. Where do you sit yeah. on the performances? And can you talk it, about that a little bit? Yeah, it's 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 got to be it's all about context kind of for me, you know, it's, you know, in, in a Friday the 13th part five or, you know, any Friday the 13th movie or any horror movie, even of that ilk, I'm, this is what I'm expecting. You know, I, I expect bad acting. And so I can, you know, I can go along with that and, and, you know, and, and, um, you know, enjoy it for that, you know, I'll enjoy it for how bad it is because I'm certainly not looking at it as a piece of high art, you know, I'm not looking at it as, that's a great story. I'm like, this is a terrible story, but this is what they're trying to do. This is the way, this is their vehicle to get me in front of these goofy gore effects. Basically they're, you know, they're, they're separating me from my money. They're taking my money from me. And if they're not going to give me something quality in return, I want it to be so bad that they can wink along with me. I can go, I can go for that. Um, in in this context, I don't know. It's 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 again, it's jarring and, and different, and I I guess it's intentional. So so yeah, I'll give it a pass. And like I I obviously I know people like John Lithgow and Dennis Franz and John Travolta and Nancy Allen are capable of of acting. You know they they have in many many other movies, and and TV shows or what have what have you have acted in far superior ways than they did here. So you have to assume at the very least, this is the intention, right? That he's, that Brian De Palma is going for this. But it um, is weird. I agree. But it's, but it's still weird. Yeah. Because it's like, why the, the movie that visually the movie's so artsy and, you know, storytelling wise, it's, it's doing things that are different, you know, or, well, they're, they're Hitchcockian. And, you know, you, of course you've talked about all of those, uh, those influences, but it's sophisticated in that, you know, the, you know, visually in a storytelling manner, it's sophisticated. So why are we doing can't be over the top acting? And, um, you know, sometimes the dialogue goes there, you know, goes, you know, goes off the rails a little bit, but why are we doing that on purpose? I, I don't, I don't understand. So that that's where it's jarring. And, and, you know, sometimes I'm just watching it and I'm like, yeah. And then other times I'm like, uh, I don't know. Um, this, this this kind of fall, falls flat for me. So again, it's all the duality, and it's weird. Maybe that's just a De Palma thing. It's like everything is there's a, a dual nature to everything, and and it's funny because I'm looking through even just looking through his his filmography, you know the stuff he's directed. You know, you mentioned Mission Impossible. He's done things like um, Casualties of War, which is you know a pretty serious kind of movie. There's a lot of like politics and things involved in some of these in some of these earlier movies too, and then he does stuff like um, um, Domino. You know, I watched Domino. I was like, yeah, "What the too, hell yeah. is that?" And you know, Snake Eyes. You know, which I again, I was like, I hated that movie so much. I saw that movie <laughs> in the theater. I hated it. I, and I think you liked that movie, if I remember right. No, no, dude. I I, I liked it before I got into movies. I have not seen okay. it since two thousand three. So I yeah. saw it sometime before then, probably I rented it probably like after it came out on video and it had Nick Cage. And again, The Rock was one of yeah. my favorite films ever. So right. the yes. fact that Snake Eyes came out and had Nick Cage before I got in the film, I remember watching that. 
And I remember thinking yeah. it was fine, but I thought everything was fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, that would yeah. be one I would actually love to rewatch with you maybe sometime uh-huh. where we could yeah. just talk about like how, because I'm sure you haven't seen it since the theater. Have you seen Snake? No, Eyes? yeah, no. See, that'd be so interesting to go yeah. back and, and do something like that. Maybe we should, but continue, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, and, and another one, his next movie, Mission to Mars, is god-awful. And it's got Tim Robbins and Don Cheadle and, I mean, Gary Sinise, who, you know, was fresh off of an Oscar win, uh, a couple of years off an Oscar win at that point. Um, but, I mean, there's there's talent there, and the movie is just head-scratchingly bad. And, you know, there's just, but there's so, there's so much, but then he does Mission Impossible, he does The Untouchables, which are wildly different from this movie. Scarface is even wildly different I mean, from this movie. They're clearly the the studio pictures. Scarface being written yeah. by Oliver Stone will inevitably have a difference. But yes. And we'll get to that. But he, mm-hmm. you know, you do mention he does a lot of these like studio pictures. And mm-hmm. and Scarface did pretty well. So he does like this Carlito's way, which is kind of like Scarface yeah. 2, basically. Not exactly, yeah. but I'm just saying, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's very much in that vein. But he's like Mission Impossible, Snake Eyes with top actors. And mm-hmm. and you do start to see him kind of go off the rails, but then he goes back and does yeah. like what feels like a passion project to me, like Fim Fatale. Yeah. And that is goes back, that harkens back to his like Hitchcock yeah. type thriller type thing. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's great. I did like it because I like uh-huh. that style, but it's mm-hmm. not like a great thing. But it's better than Mission to Mars and Snake yeah. Eyes and shit. All right. And then Black oh, Dolly is the same thing. <laughs> it's like for me, Black Dolly is like uh, a white bread kind of version of that movie, but it's still yeah. cool. Like you can, I think I gave it like a three out of five or like I was on the liked it more than I didn't kind of a thing. You know what I mean? But at least yeah. he kind of did that. And I, I don't think I've seen anything after that other than Domino. Yeah. Um, but sorry, I, think I interrupted I, you. Go I, ahead. It, well, no, no. It's, and it's weird because now I'm looking I'm like, I think I saw passion. You know, that's the, that's got Rachel McAdams and, uh, uh, Numi Rapace, yeah. I can't remember her name. Numi Rapace, um, yeah, yeah, and th- you know, I I remember some of that movie, but I don't. Did I just see the trailer? Did I just watch a little bit of it? I don't remember. Um, but you know, I've I've seen a lot of this stuff. Um, I don't think I saw Redacted. Um, but you know, it's you know, it's it's strange because he's you know he's got this kind of I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think, and I think more recently in more recent years, he's, you know, he's not the heavyweight that he was, you know, um, obviously when he's doing something like the untouchables, which I, th- I think was a huge hit and um, uh, critically and commercially, I believe. And, you know, it's, and of course, Scarface is just iconic, you know, and, and just some of this stuff, Carrie obviously is, is kind of an all timer. So he, he does a lot of stuff um, that's big time. But then he does, you know, these other things that just kind of you never hear about or you, you know, or have such a, a small release that it's just like, OK, I guess he made that movie. But, um, yeah, it's 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 just a I don't know. It's, it's head scratching. He's obviously got a lot of talent. Um, and I, I don't know if he needs if he needs someone, if he's one of those guys that needs someone to to help keep him on the, on the straight and narrow or he'll just go off the rails, um, which isn't always the worst thing. But you know, if if it's if you're going full De Palma, you might as well just do it. And you know, I mean, th- this will be close to that. I think. Yeah, the dude's like 81. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like uh, like yeah, a lot I mean, a lot of these people from his generation, with the exception mm-hmm. of Scorsese, who somehow still makes masterpieces. 
but yeah. like like your William Friedkins, your Bogdanovich, your like all of those guys that were super good yeah. in the Paul prime, Schrader. Paul yeah. Schrader, and they yeah. make these movies, and some of them still have some bangers. Like I'm not saying, but by and large, like a lot of them are kind of like awful. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Uh, and yeah. A, a lot of horror directors are the same way too. That were used to practical effects and did something very specific in the '80s, and then you know their budgets don't allow for such things, so their movies are just like garbage now. Um, yeah. There's just like there's I don't know it's kind of a bummer and I don't want to put De Palma in that level, but to some extent, like he might be going there <laughs> now. Luckily, he's like 81 and it took him that long to really get there because even Hitchcock made stinkers after The Birds. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. But uh, anyway, so you know some people get there. This is the reason why Tarantino wants to retire after his next film uh, mm-hmm. because he doesn't want to ever become that guy. Uh, oh, you know right. so. Anyways, um, I think I'll just say this, man. I, of course, I think the music is awful and blowout. I love all of the influences that blowout is pulling from, like blow up the conversation and Hitchcock stuff. Um, I think the performances are ridiculous. I'm totally here for them, even yeah. though because in their ridiculousness, they're good. Like, uh-huh. like Dennis Franz is like really good at being that sleazy guy, right? Now it yeah, doesn't yeah. feel like a real human. It feels very mm-hmm. performative, but it's like yeah. he's still like this kind of like campy, weird, sleazy guy. You know, Nancy Allen yeah. is like the ditzy blonde. You know what I mean? Like right. just the most yeah. traditional ditzy blonde who does these weird like sexual things. And and, you know, I don't know. She's just like in this like weird path, but she wants she has like higher ambitions, but she just keeps getting like fooled by all these men in her life. Basically, you know, there, there yeah. are like a lot of aspects of it that are just like really ridiculous but for some reason yeah. I really gravitated toward this and I mean I don't like it as much as I did back then like I think back then yeah. I was damn close to giving it a five out of five it's like four and a half <laughs> out of five kind of thing now yeah. it's like a four out of five movie for me because I still love it but I do yeah. think you have to be like you have to be ready to embrace these aspects mm-hmm. because I think beneath these aspects is something truly special uh, more yeah. so than Scarface or any like a lot of mm-hmm. the bangers that he did. I think there are yeah. certain things very special about this, just like there are in movies like Body Double and Dress mm-hmm. to Kill. And I think Blowout's definitely worth seeing. Um, yeah. And I like really strongly encourage people to check it out. Just remember, this is a film about a guy who works for B horror movie com- for a B horror movie company. Yeah. So the whole film almost feels like it was made by that company if they had a bigger yeah. budget. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what and, I mean? Yeah. Like, absolutely. Yeah. There's like everything for a B movie here, but it feels like an A movie because of the yeah. quality and the sophistication of the filmmaking. So mm-hmm. it's like if you can get behind it, cool. If you can't, like, I guess I get it now. Although I wouldn't have before this viewing. And I watched yeah. this with my wife too, and she kind of had hangups like as we went, and I would yeah. have never had those hangups. So I feel like I got a different perspective watching mm-hmm. it with her. Um, even just little things like Nancy Allen's in the hospital after being dragged out of the water, you know, and her hair's like perfectly curly and made up. (laughs) And my wife's like, how's her hair look like that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like little trivial things like that. But it is true though. Those things add up. And I'm like, man, there are a lot of these like weird little things that almost make it feel like a B movie. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I actually still really love this movie, but. I I I can now at least appreciate that it's not as good as I once thought it was. Though I do mm-hmm. think it is a very underrated 
De Palma film, and it makes me sad that it really just failed horribly. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. like five <laughs> million dollars under its budget it made. And I, I want to tell a fun story, and then I want you to leave us off with anything else you have left to say, sure. and then we'll move on to our next film here. Um, mm-hmm. There's a fun story about the production of this film. While uh, on the way to the airport, the driver of the van containing two reels of footage of the uh, the Liberty Parade sequence, which is the fireworks mm-hmm. sequence that you had yeah. uh, mentioned, uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, this guy, this driver stopped at a Dunkin' Donuts, leaving the van unattended. So the van was stolen while he was in this oh Dunkin' Donuts, and the footage was never seen again. So the crew had to return to Philadelphia just to reshoot the entire scene that you're talking about. <laughs> and it cost $750,000, but the cinematographer, Vilmos Sigmund, the guy that did the film was no longer available. So they had to replace the dude with Laszlo Kovacs. So dude, well, like it's actually like the sequence you said stands out, but that you also were kind of like, yeah. this is kind of cool. Um, yeah. That was all fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that's just like a very silly story, but I want you like anything you yeah. have left to say, whether it's about the production, the ending, uh-huh. like you mentioned, again, I'm trying to yeah. avoid spoilers, but again, it's 40 years yeah. old. So like, sure, if you haven't yeah. seen it, fuck you. And yeah. <laughs> uh, right. But, like, anything you have left, I want to hear what you have to say, Joe. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll I, just say I had fun watching this movie. Um, uh, it's not something I'm going to watch a lot of times, but I had I had a good time watching it. Um, and on, on a couple of levels, there, you know, it's fun seeing John Travolta back in those days. Yeah. Um, it, you know, obviously not in his big, you know, the Saturday Night Fevers or Grease or you know, the ones that he's really, really known for, but this is, this is something where he's, you know, he's established as a star and, you know, he's ostensibly getting these jobs based on, you know, who he is and, you know, obviously, you know, like his talent, but, you know, this is like, he's a star at this point. And, and, and also just as, you know, just before, as you said, just as he's, he's petering out a little bit. So it was definitely fun on that level. It was a lot of fun seeing Nancy Allen in a role like this. Um, and just just the people you run into, if you're not, you know, watching the cast list, are like, oh, wow, this is going to be kind of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, it's certainly visually very interesting. Very, very interesting. As you said, from a storytelling perspective, from a, you know, this is one of those, it, it's very 70s style. It feels very 70s to me. Um, you know, because I was watching it, I was like, well, it's 81. And I'm like, well, you know, there's a couple ways this could go. It could be, you know, it could be very eighties. It could be, you know, coming out in 81, you know, you're obviously it's going to be filmed probably 79 and 80 maybe. So it, it could still be pretty seventies. It's still, it's still, it feels, it feels like a seventies movie, but not pretentiously. So in terms of like the fashions of the time and all that stuff, yeah. it's more like the the cinematography, the styles that they use feel seventies. Um, and, and that's a good thing. That's not, you know, I'm not saying that in a, a bad, a bad way. It, and, you know, we, I said Paul Schrader earlier, it kind of reminded me of, of one of the movies he was making around those times. Um, it, and again, in a, and these guys are all contemporary. So they're all making yeah. movies like each other in a sense anyway. So it's not any big surprise, but um, you know, I, I enjoyed it on that level, just being able to look at it and seeing, you know, and just seeing these techniques they used. Um, you know, even if the rest of the movie was terrible, those techniques would be fun to watch. But, um, you know, as it is, it's it's really it was really a good time for me. 
Um, it didn't really drag that much. I was kind of worried that I'd be like sitting halfway through it and going, oh my God, when's this movie going to be over? And and I would never felt that way. It was it was just kind of fun. And I'm like, okay, well now, okay, now here's something fun is happening. And, you know, and things would happen. And, and sometimes I was disappointed and sometimes not. But, you know, overall, I'm like, uh, it was over. I was like, yeah, that was just fun. I had a good time watching it. So, good. you know, if, if, if you're a fan of cinema, you should be watching it because just because of the things that it does, um, yeah. if, if nothing else. Yeah, I think I, I I love that you at least enjoyed it. I honestly, before rewatching it, I was like, Joe's gonna love this movie. Like he's gonna <laughs> love it because there's this like campy horrorness to it. But then you know, and then as I'm watching, I'm like, I don't know if Joe's gonna like this movie. <laughs> so I'm glad that in the end you at least had a good time with it. Uh, but we're gonna go ahead and move on to Joe's pick. Um, this uh -huh. is the film that Brian De Palma uh, liked the script for so much that he dropped out of directing Flashdance to wow. direct this film. Did you know that? We're going to be talking about not. Scarface here in just a moment. Stick with us. We'll be right back. All right, everybody. We are ready to jump into Joe's pick for Brian De Palma Films, and it is no surprise that it is the 1983 film Scarface, directed by De Palma, written by... Uh, other filmmaker that is very famous, yeah. Oliver Stone, the cast, Al Pacino, Stephen Bauer, uh, Mary Elizabeth. This is always a struggle for me. Mastrantonio. Mastrantonio. Yeah. Mary Elizabeth yeah. Mastrantonio. Uh, F. Murray Abraham, Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, this is like a great cast. Uh, yeah. You know, it was released December 1st, 1983 in New York, but then a week later on December 9th in the U.S. wide. Mm -hmm. uh, the budget was... Uh, Somewhere between twenty three and a half million to thirty seven million. There's like a there's like a debate between this, which is like a huge gap. I don't really know how that where that like thirteen and a half million go, but um, anyways, there's a, a big gap. But it made sixty six million, which for the time uh, was very good. Of course, since then has probably made billions of dollars. If I had to guess, with uh, yeah. home video uh, buys and all of that, huge smash success. But part of that's probably because this film was essentially an X-rated film, and I will talk about that uh, shortly. Though it did, it was promoted as a rated R, but sure. I'll explain that story here momentarily. Yeah. So uh, the film, uh, you know, <laughs> basically after getting a green card in exchange for assassinating a Cuban government official, Tony Montana, which is Al Pacino's character, stakes a claim on the drug trade in Miami. Viciously murdering anyone who stands in his way, Tony eventually becomes the biggest drug lord in the state, controlling nearly all of the cocaine that comes through Miami. But increased pressure from the police, wars with Colombian drug cartels, and his own drug-fueled paranoia served to fuel the flames of his eventual downfall. Spoiler alert, there's a downfall here. Of course there is. Uh, the film is ultra-violent, kicking up heaps and heaps of controversy at the time. This X-rated feature, given an R rating upon release uh, after real narcotics officers came to an MPAA appeal and argued for the film, Scarface is a classic that has lived on generation to generation. A career-defining performance by Pacino, whether I agree or not, it is on a pop culture level a defining sure. moment. And, uh, you know, we follow the bad guy, and he never becomes good. And I think that... This is very rare these days. And that was one of the breath of fresh air moments watching this. It's like, wow, we get to just follow a bad guy 
Mm-hmm. And that's that. Joe, what made yeah. you pick Scarface as your De Palma pick for this episode? Man, we got we got white guys and Jewish guys doing, you know, Cuban accents. And we got, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer running around with her nose in the air. And, you know, there's just there's so much. This movie is just so completely over the top in so many ways. This is like. You know, you were saying that, you know, it's Brian De Palma written by Oliver Stone. And you're like, man, these two guys separately can get into some trouble. <laughs> and you stick them together and, and turn them loose on the world. And, and what's going to happen? Well, Scarface is what happens. And uh, you didn't even mention Stephen Bauer, obviously, who's not as huge a star as his other names. I mentioned, mentioned. Stephen Bauer, you asshole. Did you say Stephen Bauer? Yeah, he's the second right, name well, I said. All right, fine. You said Stephen Bauer. I wasn't listening anyway. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, this, Harris Eulin. Harris Eulin is like my dark horse in this movie for just like the guy that I love uh, for as small as his role is. Um, there's just so much. And F. Murray Abraham, I just love in this movie so, so much. good. Man, he is just so weaselly. And I love him so much. And those two uh, are just amazing in this movie. This that movie dude is- in the 80s. Give yeah. me a break, that guy. Man, oh my gosh. You, you know, well, we can we can talk about F. Murray Abraham movies. If you've never seen it, an innocent man, and you've never seen F. Murray Abraham say to Tom Selleck, Don't you talk out of the side of your neck to me, boy. It's <laughs> poetry. It's poetry. That's awesome. it's, uh, it's one of the first prison movies I've ever saw. It's got Tom Selleck and F. Murray Abraham. Go watch it if you never have. It's it's so gloriously bad, but um, but anyway, uh, I think that's like eighty nine too. But anyway, um, yeah. But this this movie is so iconic, but it's so it's also kind of bad. It's also just a bad movie in a lot of ways. Dude, it's kind of you awful. It. Yeah, you just watch it and you're just like, this movie's kind of terrible, but it's so much fun. Who really cares? You know, and and the it's just like literally they're like, what are we gonna do at the end? Okay, he's gonna pull out a giant gun. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, just start blasting and like, he's going to go down like a badass, you know, but it's like, uh, you know, whatever he's, you know, it's like, you know, his downfall is his downfall. I don't know. He's, I feel like Tony Montana is one of these figures that pop culture has elevated and given a, a, a bigger status. I mean, obviously he's, he's a great memorable character, but you know, what they gave what he's got is this like folk hero thing. It's like, ah, I don't know that it's earned, he's earned it. But whatever, whatever you like, I guess. But this movie is just so just batshit on so many levels. It's, you know, it's like there's a scene with a chainsaw in a in a motel or some like seedy apartment, whatever you call those things. And it's just so bizarre and weird. And and there's that. And then there's like implied incest at one point, like implied like or at least a desire for it maybe like you know like he's he's clearly in love with his sister on some level and you know and it's like there's all of this just weird stuff going on and it's all just out there on you know for show so um you know guys being hung from helicopters and you know it's just like nuts so that that's really what the the appeal of it is and and it's like okay i'll i'll go along with that i'll watch it and i'm like every time i watch it i just see more stuff i'm like this is really terrible but I also love it. So, uh, you know, that that's kind of why I, in in short, that's why I chose it. Dude, I have so much to say about this. I'm going to go on a little tirade here. I feel go the same it. way as you. 
that I think this movie is actually a terrible movie, but that it's like I can't help but have a great time watching it. (laughs) (laughs) The, The soundtrack is good, but like the score is just as bad as anything else. Yeah. Um, and it's just so cheesy. And mm-hmm. and it's funny. I, I want to start here. The film has obviously been super influential. It influenced a lot of the hip-hop community to the extent that when Scarface was re-released in cinemas in 2003, the studio mm-hmm. wanted Brian De Palma to change the soundtrack to rap songs that were inspired by the film. But, of Man. course, rightfully so, De Palma just refused. <laughs> It'll figure so, that one. You know, yeah. but... Um, but it was hugely influential, if if not for the best influence, uh, Razor Ramon and uh, the WWF. <laughs> yes, yes. Probably the best influence that came out of uh, Scarface. But, um, you know, this, this is one of those films that started off with such clout. And what I mean by that is as it was being made, they, they uh, sent the film to the MPAA, which is the, uh, the uh, motion picture kind of group or whatever that uh, go in and they watch a movie and then they rate it, right? They vote on what a rating should be and they get it. So the first cut of this film got an X rating. So they got a series of things. What's funny is a lot of times the second time that there's a screening, it's different people uh, in the MPA. <laughs> this is fucked up, okay? You should watch yeah. the film. This film is not yet rated and you'll learn a lot yes. about the MPAA. But anyways, sometimes it's like different people. So you could just put the same cut in and possibly get a rated. Anyways, so yeah. uh, get an X rating. They edit it and resubmit, get an X rating. Edit it, resubmit again. Because um, like the second time it was like the the guy who gets shot in this scene gets shot too many times. Like it was that kind of a thing. So yeah. they submitted a third time and uh, De Palma's like, I refuse to cut anymore because like now you're butchering my film. And they gave him an X rating. So he... Uh, files for an appeal. At the appeal, he has real narcotics officers come in and watch the film and then basically tell them this is how it really is. People need to see this film because it's ultimately an anti-drug film because Mm -hmm. of, like, you're following this bad guy and he's never redeemed. In the end, he fucking dies. Again, spoiler if you haven't seen it. uh, You suck if you haven't because it's, like, super famous um, yeah. It's like me spoiling Forrest Gump or something. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Just watch the movie. So anyways, uh, when Tony dies, it's like he dies in the end. You you get your comeuppance. There's nothing wrong with this. The narcotics yeah. people like do it. So they gave it an R during the appeal. So then De Palma, the cheeky bastard's like, I don't think they'll be able to tell the difference between my first cut and my third. So the motherfucker puts the first cut in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is just like the greatest story of that doesn't make me like the film more Um, just on like surface level bullshit. Uh, I mean, like, I don't know what does, but I just like adore that story of the X rating. Uh, But yeah, this film was X rated because it's super fucking violent and it's weird. And it's like at the time, this was super believable. And a lot of things that are kind of cringy to me, like an Mm -hmm. Italian American playing like a Cuban guy, dude, like. Pacino spent so much time getting this accent down, okay? Like, there's so much time with him doing this and learning all of these phrases and really working with these coaches, and it still feels so performative to me. Yeah. And and it's it's not that it's bad. It's just like, I don't believe you're actually Cuban, so you look like a white guy playing a Cuban guy. You know what I'm saying? Um, And so it's like, 
man, like that's so weird. But then at the same time, like it's funny because Al Pacino has said that Tony Montana is one of his most favorite characters he's ever played. It's like, mm-hmm. fuck, man. Like I want to like Tony as much as you do, but I just don't. Like, yeah. Tony is not the sell for this film for me, you know? Um, yeah, and no. I, I also, like, I'm surprised that people think that this movie is so realistic because it is oh, so yeah. over the top and ridiculous. The mm-hmm. writing, not the story, but, like, the dialogue in particular is mm-hmm. so mediocre that, like, yeah. I, I can't, like, understand how anyone would believe these are like three-dimensional characters by any stretch of the imagination (laughs) or the sequence of them killing the Cuban at the very beginning is Mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination, a realistic scenario. I mean, it feels like just so planned. Um, And so like, yeah, with the the writing being the way it is again, not against Oliver Stone. I think the story is interesting, Uh, like the overarching story, but like all of the elements of the writing that was like weird, um, and the performances, like I said, feel very performances are performative and just like just not believable. Now, I want to clarify something. When you say a performance is performative, one could say, well, that's the point, jackass. No, the point of being an actor is to embody this character and fulfill the context in which the film is trying to, uh, you know, n- nail, basically. Oliver Stone's purpose, and by proxy, De Palma's was to depict a what it is like to be a drug lord mm-hmm. in not the early 80s, okay, with cocaine, yeah. which is a huge thing. Oliver Stone, luckily, uh, through the majority of this writing, or maybe the whole thing was sober, but he was a cokehead like many of those guys. Yeah. And uh, so, like, I think their goal was to be believable. <laughs> like, and when yeah. you watch the film, you know, it opens with, <clears throat> excuse me, it opens with like real footage of things mm-hmm. going on. And like, there's almost this like, it's not like a documentary at all, but like, there's almost no. this like, there. I don't know, it just feels so much like they're trying to be believable. And I actually like the sequence with the chainsaw, except for like the dude goes cross-eyed when his arm's getting cut off. I'm like, this is yeah. so comical to me. Like, I can't take this seriously, even though the first time I saw it as a teenager, it turned my mm-hmm. stomach. It was like yeah. so visceral to me, but now it's like yeah. I laugh at it almost, and I shouldn't. Um, but like when he shoots the dude in the middle of the street right after that, that's awesome. Like I love the yeah. intensity of that. It just happens mm-hmm. so quick. The way that people freak out, and he just like walks to the fucking car. <laughs> He's like, "Let's yeah. get out of here." Yeah. I love the badassery of that. But man, mm-hmm. a lot of this movie, I kind of just found boring, and mm-hmm. I was like kind of surprised. I feel like I feel this way the way you felt about Blowout, where it's like you still liked it. I have a good time with it. There are sequences where I'm just kind of like, this is kind of boring. But then something kicks in. You're like, oh, shit, this is cool. Like, that was my experience with Scarface. Um, And I still like it, uh, like, overall. But I just kind of like it more than I don't, if that makes sense. And I don't know. Again, I also like that we're, we're following a bad guy. That's pretty great. Uh, you know, you get to yeah. follow this guy that is by no means someone to look up to. And I love that we follow a terrible person from beginning to end. And we just watch him become more terrible. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, like, we're, I, I know I said a lot, so I'm just going to kind of, like, hand all of that to you in, like, a vomit <laughs> bowl here. Uh, but, like, where do you stand on all these? Like, 
rewatching it now, uh-huh. what is your updated opinion of this? You touched on it a bit, but just like kind of focusing yeah. on your updated opinion. Like, where do you yeah, stand yeah. with a lot of this? Yeah, it it's uh, it, you know, I I really love it in certain ways, but watching it again, I I it feels like one of these movies to me now where you know how certain movies get spoiled by becoming too popular. This is maybe like the epitome of that, where it yeah. gets spoiled. People's, you know, when too many people like it, you know, it stops being, it stops being cool, you know, it, and it just becomes, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just too much, you know, and, and it's like when, you know, when your your aunt Mimi or whatever is like, oh, I just love that movie so much, and you're just like, oh, you know, like the last movie you loved was I don't know how to lose a guy in ten days, or you know, I don't know whatever, like you know, whatever vanilla, you know, rom-com, you know, regular straight lace kind of thing that you're like, oh, you know, Green Book should have won Best Picture. I'm so glad it won Best Picture. And you're like, no, that movie sucks. <laughs> you know, and it's like, when that stuff happens, and, you know, and then they, they like, the same people latch onto a movie like this, and you're just like, uh, I guess that one's kind of ruined. And that, that's kind of what it is, you know, in a sense. But this is like the crazy movie for people who don't like crazy movies. And, you know, they watch it and they're like, oh, I really love crazy movies. And it's like, well, have you ever seen a Serbian film? You know, like, have you ever seen The Human Centipede? You know, like, what's that? You know, and you're like, okay, well, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, you know, so, so that, that's kind of what, that's kind of what this is in a sense for me, but it, it still is enjoy. It's a movie where if it's on TV and I don't have anything to do, maybe I'll stop and watch it for a while. But if it's not on TV, you know, I'm not like, I'm, I'm not really racing to go, oh, I've got to watch that again. It's been a couple of years. I, I kind of have my memories of it and, and I enjoy those memories. And, you know, there's certain things that I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I really like that. I really like that. This part, you know, say hello to my little friend is, le- I've always found it to be less than its reputation. You know, like it, it's, everybody's like, say hello to my little friend. And it's like this big, awesome. And I was like, I don't know. It's, it's not that cool. Lame. Yeah, it's kind of lame. Yeah, I'm like, it's pretty lame, honestly. The way he delivers it, number one. And it's just like, eh, I don't really care. I, I, I think he had like 10 or 15 lines in that movie that were far better than Say Hello to My Little Friend. And, you know, but again, that's what happens when you get the wrong people, you know, keying in on your on your cool movie. But, it, you know, but there there are still some beats. Like I said, Harris Eulen, that that segment with you know when when Tony and uh, I don't even remember what Stephen Bauer's character's name is now um, when they when they Manny. kill the, Manny yeah they kill Lopez and they kill um, Harris Eulen's character um, I love that scene you know it, it's it's not and it's not even particularly a great scene but I just love it just because Harris Eulen's just sitting there while while Robert Loja is like groveling and bit. Robert Loja by the way with a terrible spray tan. Which this is like what that movie is. is So many terrible spray tans, so many horrible, like, you know, I mean, border, I mean, I could I even, should I even say borderline racist, like racist caricatures? I mean, although, like, you know, like whatever, authenticity, whatever, I don't know, but so bad. Like they, they couldn't get some real Cuban actors. I don't know. This movie would be much different if they had, I guess, but um, there's just so much, just so many bad spray tans and accents, just terrible accents. And it, it's almost like, <clears throat> excuse me, during that part, you know, it's just like, 
Robert Loja is so terribly good <laughs> in this movie that when that happens, I'm like happy. I'm like, he's killing this terrible and also amazing part of the movie. And then Harris Eulin's just sitting there all cool. And, and Tony's just like, yeah, now I'm going to kill you. Like you're acting all cool, but you're about to die. <laughs> you know? And, and uh, uh, you know, that that's the scene where, you know, shoot that piece of chit, you know? And yeah. I'm just like, God, that's so terrible. Yeah. Uh, it's but, funny because you have your Al Pacino, your Michelle Pfeiffer, your Stephen Bauer, and so on. And these mm -hmm. people get like, they're the memorable people. But like yeah. Robert Loja, F. Murray Abraham, uh, like all of these kind of like secondary to an extent mm -hmm. characters yeah. are just the best. Like, yeah. like they are a billion times better, in my opinion, than even Pacino, mm -hmm. whom I love, by the way. I just think Pacino yeah. had a hard 80s. OK, yeah, <laughs> like right. like there are some good ones in there. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying like, sure. you know, when you when you start off with like, um, oh, God, I always forget the name of this movie. I'm going to look it up as we're talking uh, because I'm that guy. Uh, but cruising like when you start the oh, yeah. 80s off with cruising and then uh -huh. you move on through like, you know, Dick Tracy. And uh, well, that was technically 90. But I mean, like he didn't do that much in the 80s. Like, mm -hmm. he, he did Cruising, uh, Author, Author, Scarface, Revolution, Sea of Love, and that's it. Five movies. Wow. And it's like, none of those are really great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he had a rough mm -hmm. 80s, all right? Now, of course, he yeah, makes up yeah. for a lot of that in the 90s. And in the 70s, of course, he has some gangbusters and some incredible stuff. It's just this was not his era, in my opinion. And quite frankly, yeah. between all of those, I'd probably say Scarface is my favorite of the five. That's still uh -huh. a low bar. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> and so I find it interesting. This is just one of those movies where, like, this, the secondary cast, like Robert Loggia, mm -hmm. Despite yeah. the spray tan, despite the fact that this guy's supposed to be some Central American dude or something, yeah. motherfucker's awesome. Like, is that yeah. guy ever not? Like, he's so good. And he's playing a very specific Loja-type character, but it mm -hmm. fits so perfectly in this role. Yeah. And I just think it's great. And, of course, we already talked about F.W. Abraham, but he's yeah. just, like, so great all the time. Even in, like, right. the bad movies. I feel like I still like him. Yeah. It's just the uh -huh. movie sucks. But yeah, yeah, you were talking about like how these movies often will kind of build a certain fan base that doesn't fit in with you. And I do wonder if this was not as popular as it was, if this was uh, a second blowout in terms of like failure. And I just found this movie, if uh -huh. it would kind of blow my mind because it was just this like kind of underrated thing that no one talks about. I'd probably love it because like, I'd be excited to show people the movie, even though it's not really that great. Yes. Um, but because it is what it is, it's less that so many people like it, in my opinion. And it's more that people with bad taste think this is the best film ever. Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that like makes it difficult. That does not play into my feelings because there are unfortunately a lot of movies like that, that I still like, like that doesn't make me not like something. It makes sure. me maybe not want to like something, but you know, sometimes it's like, well, fuck I do. Damn it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, yeah, Scarface is just one of those like weird things that was made. And, uh, but they did some cool stuff though. Like, you know, you get some interesting camera work at times um, and some, and some pretty cool visuals. I guess that yeah. the the prop firearms that they were using for a lot of the shootouts, particularly 
Like when you think of the ones like at the end in uh, Mon- Tony Montana's house, they were yeah. equipped with like these weird electronic synchronizing devices, which is like super crazy for 83 in my head. Uh, yeah, so that they would only fire when the camera shutter was open. So wow. basically, the result of that is that like the gun muzzle flashes are as yeah. m- are like much more visible and consistent than any other films of the time because they only oh. flashed when the camera was open. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah. little weird things like that that went into this movie make me appreciate it a lot more. You know what yeah. I mean? Because like that's yeah, like yeah. super granular. Like to think of something like that, um, and and I really appreciate that. And I don't know if he thought of it, mm-hmm. but there's also like weird like trivia things. Like I mean, it's no secret that Spielberg and De Palma were really good friends. They grew up in the same generation of filmmakers. Um, but you know, and they started pretty much making studio films around the same time. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, it's interesting because Spielberg was like on set. For one of the days of shooting the Colombians, like initial t- attack on the on the Montana household uh, at yeah. the end of the film, and so like De Palma lets Spielberg direct like all the low angle shots where the attackers you know first enter the house and stuff, yeah. and it's like that's cool. Like Spielberg had a weird hand in this movie, which yeah. is even weirder also because this is like so far from being like a Spielberg <laughs> movie. Um, yeah. So there's just like a lot of like weird stuff with this movie. And I just, to be honest, I just don't exactly know how to feel about it because yeah. I don't really have anything good to say other than like some of the production stuff is really cool. And the initial overarching story is interesting to me, Yeah. but, uh, but I still like it. And so it's like one of those, like, uh, or I don't know. Maybe I'd use the word like I enjoy watching it. I don't know how to. I, I kind of want to be specific with that wording. And so it's yeah. like I don't know how to like feel about it. I don't know how to art like <laughs> process it. Do you know what I mean? Uh huh. I don't know. Yeah. Man. No. No. Yeah. No. I'm I'm right there with you. It's yeah. It's it's this weird kind of I enjoy it and I also don't. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I'm I mean I'm with you that you know the if nothing else it brought the world razor ramon and that by itself makes it worth it and there you know there are times you know when the first time he says chico you know i was just like you know and and if you're watching this or listening to this and you're not a wrestling fan um you got to go back to like mid 90s wwf if you're a fan of this movie and and see scott hall like watch some of his vignettes you know in, in promos as as razor ramon Go to YouTube, type in Razor Ramon promo. Yeah, his toothpick and his, you know, that became signatures for that character. And and even even when he, you know, stopped using the character, he still had to use that voice a little bit. And, you know, he still used the toothpicks and still slicked his hair back. You know, he had had sort of a mullet, but, you know, uh, not not Tony Montana-esque, but, and he wore the gold chains and, you know, but, you know, saying he said Chico all the time and he, you know, say hello to the bad guy. And, you know, so he just it's just like he came right out of this movie and um, it, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You should definitely go check it out. Uh, it's also another white guy playing like and he's just being a hard ass. He's a giant. This guy uh-huh, yeah. it's like a massive yeah. human. Mm-hmm. Um. Hey, Chico. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Uh, anyways, back to Scarface. Uh, I, I honestly don't even know 
what more to say about yeah. Scarface um, beyond just the... It's just like one of those weird things where you have the white folks playing like it's kind of like I hate to say it this way, but it's kind of like this weird like brown face thing. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, exactly what it is, though. It, yeah. it, it reminds me of like it's weird because like I watched something like Lawrence of Arabia mm-hmm. and in that you have that all over it. You know, there's like a lot of white dudes kind of performing as a different uh, race yeah. or ethnicity and, and all of those things. Uh, and and it seems strangely more acceptable watching films from that era, especially yeah. like pre like during the production code. Um, and by acceptable, I mean it still sucks. There's no justification. But when you look at it historically, this was acceptable at the time, and this was normal. So it's kind of easier to overlook because we can all just acknowledge it's bad. But like, yeah. let's look for the merits of the film now that we can all agree on that. But when you get to the '80s, man. Yes, it was still kind of like acceptable at the time, mm-hmm. but it's like, yeah. man, it feels worse. Yeah, you know? yeah, it, it feels slimier, yeah, and worse. Which, which is what this movie feels like anyway. This movie feels slimy, so it's poetic. I don't want to call it poetic justice. It's you know, but it's it feels fitting because of the sliminess of the movie, you know, and and, yeah. it, and it feels it feels worse, you know, as you said, but. But it also, but it also kind of tracks with what you know, with what they're doing, what yeah. they were doing at the time. So, yeah, it's it's super violent. Again, basically, people in the theaters got an X-rated movie uh, that was uh, mistakenly rated R, <laughs> yeah. which I love. I still don't understand why people sincerely thought this film was super realistic. I yeah. mean, dude, you can go back and look at like Colombian drug cartel murders, and they're like vicious, man. Yeah, but we're talking like Colombian neckties and decapitations mm-hmm. and like very strange murders. This is like just hanging people from helicopters, which is weird and pretty cool yeah. for the movie. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and like chainsawing people's arms off, which was probably something that they did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I don't know, but it's just like there. I'm just still kind of baffled that people found this to be like super realistic. Yeah, I don't know. Uh-huh. I just find that so strange. Different times, I guess. You know, different strokes so. for different folks, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, any any. So this was your pick. Any any last yeah. thoughts yeah. on Scarface? You you know what the the one the other thing you know while we're on that kind of that subject, I guess this is as as fitting a thing to end on as anything is that you know seeing that the that beginning um, where you know the the opening crawl where they. You know, it, it, it discusses how um, Fidel Castro sent, you know, like open the borders and let people over, like, you know, the, the dissidents over and stuff. But he also threw in criminals purposefully. And and I just think about, and what I hear is, you know, they're murderers and they're criminals. And, and I assume some of them are good people too. And it just felt like it stoked so much like anti-immigrant kind of sentiment that, you know, and, and this, and that's, maybe that's the, this time, this, this viewing thing was I saw that crawl and I was like, good God, like I, that's where it comes from. Right. I guarantee that's where Donald Trump got that. As he watched this movie and he was like, those <laughs> damn immigrants sending these immigrants over and they're criminals and they're drug Lords. And, you know, and I'm like, I, I bet money that's where it came from. Um, 
and and then there was a headline today about um uh from Joe Pantoliano um that came out today I don't know if you've even seen it where he he said that um Donald Trump used the Sopranos to as I don't know a blueprint for being a douche or something you know and I was like this I uh, this movie has to have had the same like the same thing it has to it's gotta be it there's no world where this didn't this isn't where this came from yeah and and it's like a Reagan era movie so part of me wonders like you know like but but it's funny because both Brian De Palma and Oliver Stone would not have been fans of Reagan at all no so it's like yeah. like I don't know but then part of me is like but did it kind of like reach people in a time of a Reagan era where they yeah. could kind of get behind the sentiments you just said, even if it was yeah. not the intent of Oliver Stone and Brian De Palma. There, there's a lot yeah. of speculation there that we could just sit and kind of like talk about from like a fantasy yeah. perspective of like speculation, you know, just us trying to figure yeah. it out. Uh, but yeah, it's just a weird movie. And it's like, it feels like an action movie, you mm-hmm. know, uh, like just, yeah. to, but it's like, in that way, though, it's like better than a lot of them. I think just because it's just like more interesting generally. I also just like kind of like cartel and like drug related movies like that. Like I think yeah. uh, they're pretty cool. But um, this one is just like man, I don't even know. I honestly thought this would be the straightforward conversation we have, and then yeah. Blowout would be kind of the weird one. And it's kind of flipped <laughs> where it's like now watching Scarface again. It's like I don't even know how. To like uh, process this movie because right. it's like so bizarre. It's X-rated, super violent. Al Pacino's a Cuban. Uh, yeah. Like the music is like super cheesy, but like mm-hmm. the '80s soundtrack's cool. But it also kind of has a cheesiness that, like, because of the age. But I love that part of it. But still, like, it just feels very much like Grand Theft Auto Vice City, and uh, yes. which of yeah. course this was a huge influence. But still, yeah, by design, yeah, yeah. And uh, but then you also have, like you said, like there is almost a sophistication to uh, the filmmaking because you have someone like De Palma who knows what they're doing behind a camera. But man, yeah. when it comes to like all the aspects coming together, I'm like the mo- I, the more and more I watch these De Palma movies, the more and more perplexed I get by this motherfucker because I don't <laughs> know like what this guy's thinking, and yes. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just like I can't even figure out. Because, dude, I think Carrie has super cheesy moments. Oh, yeah. uh, and the music's, like, really awful a lot of times. Not all yeah. the time, but I, like, still like that movie because it's just, like, a very iconic kind of horror movie. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, and then, but then, like, Body Double is ridiculous. Yeah. It's, like, mm-hmm. ridiculous. And it came <laughs> yeah. out right after this. Mm-hmm. I, dude, I just don't even understand this guy. I am going yeah. to send you, Joe, uh, uh-huh. as soon as we're done with this. Before we actually hang up, we'll stop recording. Before we hang up, I'm sending you a scene from Sisters. It's all right. awesome. I encourage all, right. all of you to go check out, uh, look for Sisters Split Screen on YouTube. It's so good. It's like six minutes long or something. It's super long. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, I think we're good to leave off on Scarface now. I mean, we didn't so much yeah. get down to the nuts and bolts of it, but go watch it. We talked about some more peripheral things, and I love it. Uh, yeah. what do you want to leave us off with on this, Joe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, if you, you know, if you're listening to this, you've probably seen it. If you haven't, go see it. And you know, it's you know, go see it. It's terrible, <laughs> but it's also not. Um, but 
you know, it, this is, this is, uh, uh, you know, we're talking about an iconic kind of film. So, yeah. Um, I mean, we could, you know, like you said, the spoiling the end is at the point. It's not, you know, it, it's, it's got amazing music too. Giorgio Moroder did the music for this, for that movie, it, you know, and as weird and off-putting as the music was for Blowout, um, this m- music, mo- you know, mostly feels perfect. You know, that it sets the mood really well. And there's a lot of like, you know, this is kind of just this pulsing kind of, it, it feels like a weird, like ebbing of like the tide, you know, and it's, it's just bizarre and weird and, and kind of perfect. Um, but this movie is so bizarre anyway, that it's just, you know, it, it's both terrible and it's kind of perfect in a way. So um, in, in kind of a bizarre way. So that that's kind of the, really the essence of this movie is it's just, just go see it, just go watch it. Um, you know, and if you have some insight on it that we don't come tell us about it and let us know, because um, th- this is one of those movies that everybody kind of has an opinion on and, and uh, we really need to hear a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, before we do uh, get off here, I do want to look up Scarface's, uh, I don't give a shit about Rotten Tomatoes, but I, I do want to see what it has. It's an 82. Now, here's the funny thing. I would probably, if I rated on Rotten Tomatoes, I would probably give it a positive. Yeah. Mm. Even though I still think it's not great, which, again, this is yeah. kind of the problem with the the uh, uh, cumulative numbers of Rotten Tomatoes, where I'm sure yeah. most of the critics on here are not, like, gung-ho about the movie, but it's overwhelmingly positive, so you still get fresh, so to speak, yeah. right? Um, and, and so I, I think that's kind of an important thing to mention too, where it's like you and I would probably still give it this positive contributing Absolutely. to its overwhelmingly positive percentage, mm-hmm. but I don't, I can't really say much good about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when we say it's like terrible, go watch it. It's kind of like yeah. you, I don't think you'll regret it. Like it's still like a, an entertaining kind of fun time. It's just bad. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's weird. So anyways, that's our talk on uh, Scarface. We've talked about Blowout prior to this. Uh, Do you have any zingers you're going to leave us off with, Joe? I can tell by your face you don't. I do. I do. I wanted to to be a little more uh, natural, but I I was going to say, Chi-Chi, get the yayo. All right, everybody, we're going to close out the show. I had to turn the air conditioner back on. It's hot as fuck up here. So if you can hear it, just deal with it for a minute. Anyways, uh, today we talked about uh, a couple of Westerns. talked about 310 to Yuma. We talked about The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. I hope you enjoyed that. If you haven't seen those, please go check out both of them. I really hope that you enjoy them. If you're not used to Westerns, maybe we'll work up to that. Feel free to hit me up on Twitter or Letterboxd. Uh, you'll find me Austin Glidden and uh, I'll help you figure out what to watch first but you got to get to these they're great Uh, also uh, Joe and I were able to celebrate Brian De Palma's birthday by discussing Blowout and Scarface love Blowout Uh, Scarface is kind of one of those bad movies that I still find entertaining man it's ridiculous goodness gracious rewatching it was just like whoa how was this made Anyway, so uh, yeah, that's what we did today. It was great. 
uh, we're going to be having some interesting scheduling stuff going on over the next uh, month or so. There's a lot of stuff in the air, to be honest. I had the whole thing planned out, and a lot of stuff's just kind of been tossed up. So uh, hopefully next week we'll just have Joe back on. There's a whole lot of stuff. Pedro Almodovar's birthday, uh, you know, Ethan Cohen from the Cohen Brothers' birthday. What are we going to do? We'll figure that out over this week but until then you know uh you guys just have a good week please go watch a ton of movies watch some of these movies go watch some brian de palma uh maybe start prepping go watch some coen brother stuff like no country for old men or fargo big lebowski something and while you do that just take care hey i love you good night good luck and take it easy <laughs>